Still haven't seen Deadpool, have you? No, I haven't. We're just in a loser's club, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we are. It, it is kind of funny how big Deadpool is because he's a character that only got going, uh, I want to say it was the early 1990s he was made. Right, which is partly is, why I don't know much about him. Yeah. He's sort of in one of my many holes because he did come along later and he was his own thing. So yeah, it is kind of... Well, and he started out as like, he started out in like the X-Men storyline and part of his thing was, you know, they were too serious. So he was a bit of a cut up. Mm-hmm. He wasn't one of them, of course, but yet in some ways they do make jokes that he is kind of one of them because he has these like incredible superpowers, which are not the normal ones we think of. Normally we think of flying, you know, bulletproof, mm-hmm. uh, something like that, or some magic, you know, lasso like Wonder Woman. But he just heals from everything. Mm. So he's got this kind of crazy ability. You know, he has this like, he's a great shot, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But if he gets hurt, like he heals up really fast. This is called a healing factor. All right. They've never thought of that one before. He's the first yeah, right. one. <laughs> I think so. I mean, they gave it to Wolverine eventually, yeah, right? I was, yeah, I was, yeah, eventually. I think he was after that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a new idea. But it, he was the rated R Marvel mm-hmm. when he came out. And, and that kind of like brash transition from the 80s to the 90s. Yeah. And I only found him after the fact. But he's, a, he's like a cult classic, mm-hmm. which is weird because he's not that old. But people love him because he's so... And I think the movie captures some of this. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just such a cut up. He's such a screw around. He makes off color jokes. He's kind of, he's, I think, literally insane on some level. Yeah, he's not a villain. He kind of starts out as a villain, but then he's an so. anti hero. He's not quite a villain, which is always a fun type character. Yeah, he, he's, he's someone, that movie, I think, is, someone told me, is maybe number eight comedy of all time. It's not really? actually technically comedy, but if you considered it a comedy and not a superhero, it, it's just made a huge amount of money. And uh, so I'd like to see it. It's just the, the problem of time and, time, and yeah. finding a spot to go. But um, so Some of my friends don't want to go see it. They just, they don't quite get it. Like right. They're used to the superheroes. If, if they're into the genre, it's newer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I shouldn't say they don't want to see it, but they're just curious. Like, what is this? Like, it doesn't quite fit a grid. Right, um, and I've heard that's part of its success is that for people that don't like superhero movies, it's one they might go to because they, they don't want to just watch the X-Men fight, but they'll watch right. something funny like this. But I had read, did you ever see the Marvel Zombies series? It's kind of Marvel no. heroes set in The Walking Dead type thing. It's actually no. someone's written by Robert Kirkman who did The Walking Dead. And it's supposed to be an alternate universe. And is it supposed to be? Is it new? It must be new. Uh, it's five, six years old. It's really a lot of fun because it's basically what if the zombie virus hit the Marvel universe, and <laughs> uh, what if all the superheroes got infected? And it ends up there's about three people left on the planet because the superheroes <laughs> just sort of eat everybody, and they're yeah, unstoppable. It's like, yeah. If you get if you turn the good guys bad, yeah, how yeah. do you stop them? And, and yeah, you, you're just stuck. And so one of the jokes in it is about Deadpool because he's a gets infected with the zombie virus, but I guess he can't die and he's a zombie. So he's just a head. And and <laughs> he's talking the whole time and he's just this head like in a box. And he's like, you know, eat everybody. But what's weird is when I read it, I didn't know Deadpool. I didn't get the joke, which is that uh, because he's really mouthy, he's kind of like Spider-Man to the nth degree, always mouthing off like yeah. uh, Peter Parker or Spider-Man used to do. Because of that, that was part of the joke. Part of this is that comic book history or comic books require a lot of history. 
that they do. Yeah. That you've with the backstory, you've really got to know why this character is they're using this character because there's a there's a joke behind it often, or there's something going on that you're not aware of. Yeah. Well, like one of the big ones now is Iron Man, and they play it up a bit in the movies, but they don't comment on it. In the late '70s, I forget exactly where it ran, but I think it was just in the Iron Man series where he, I think it's called Demon in the Bottle. It's, a, it's an iconic yes, series. Yeah. And, and it comes out that he's an alcoholic. And things start going wrong and he can't figure it out. And from that point until now, it's just known his Playboy days are over. I mean, he's still kind of a smart mouth and all that kind of stuff. But he was Howard Hughes when it came out. I mean, he's like walking around in the 70s like in a leisure suit. Like there's always some lady that's like mm -hmm. into him. And uh, it's actually really bad, actually, because he's always carrying around this really crappy extra small suitcase with his armor in it. And right. you're always like, how does the armor fit in that? It doesn't make any sense. You're not supposed and, to ask that question. Yeah, and he always has to run into a bathroom or somewhere to, to put it on. <laughs> and it's it's really awful, at least in terms of like the, the, the way that they make that happen. But I didn't know this history because there's one bit where much later, in the, I think in the 2000s, Iron Man is, he has to sacrifice something that is meaningful to him to get, I think it's Odin, the Odin character in Thor's dad. He has to get him to do something. Hmm. And they, I mean, it's kind of the, what can he give up? His money? That doesn't really care, you know. Eventually, he gives up his sobriety. Oh, no. so he, says, he says, fine, I'll give you the one thing I care about. And he, he takes a swig. And like somehow that enacts the, the next scene. He couldn't give up his alcoholism, huh? Because that would have yeah. helped. Yeah, that's that, right. That would have been, been the yeah. smart play. But. but it was one of these like, ooh, like yeah, he hasn't done yeah. that in forever. And occasionally it'll come up. But uh, if you look at the Iron Man movies, the first one, he's, he is drinking. And if you notice, people have pointed this out, he stops like mm -hmm. from that point on after the arrest and all, or he gets put in the cave. And after he comes out, he, he sort of has a change. Yeah. Yeah, there's in the second one. There's he does get. I think he drinks because he has a fight with the suit, doesn't he? Doesn't the suit show so. up in his mansion uh, yeah. and something it's being like remote that. controlled or something? Oh I, yeah, I need to go see that. But by the really bad Russian accent guy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what are my birds? Yes. Oh, my birds. Got to like, have what, that. What Eastern accent? Is that? Europe accent. Yeah, so comics, and and that's a real problem for comics, which is that, and that's why they're always rebooting, and and even in a sense, James Bond reboots and X-Men yeah, reboots and yeah. Spider-Man because otherwise it becomes impenetrable. And if you want to, at least to new audiences, and if you want to grow, which you have to do because your your audience has a set shelf life, they're going to die at some point. Yeah. Uh, you've, if you want to keep growing, you've got to, got to do a reboot that will bring new people in and they don't feel like, oh, well, I've got to study all this. And No, you're right. I watched, I just not that long ago watched the latest reboot of James Bond. Mm-hmm. And Daniel Craig, of course, is the new guy. And in the first one, they talk about his womanizing. Mm -hmm. And it's not a good thing. They, someone asked him, like, what women are appealing to you? And he says, basically, it's married women. Hmm. Uh, no, no strings. He, it's, it's like he's utterly isolated. And it's, like, I mean, if you look back to Sean Connery, it's like, hey, I'm the, I'm the playboy, this mm -hmm. kind of thing. With Daniel Craig, they make it actually a character flaw that he won't let anybody in, he kind of locks down, right. this type of stuff. It's not about the women, it's just, you know, it's it, it, it actually is a, is a bit of a sad thing. Yes, that's always a challenge. And I think we've both seen this also 
apply with theology and history, which is, yeah. where do you start? Because there's such a, you know, you just look at Karl Barth on the shelf and you feel depressed because you know, <laughs> it's a, you know, which one do I start with and what do I right. do? And you start reading it and you're like, why, why are there these subsections? And, yeah. and, and, uh, so that, that's always a bit is especially comic book history can be challenging because it's got 90 years of history or so, but the Christian theology has 2000 years of history. Yeah. So what would you tell a student? How do you how do you guide them in that that morass of information? Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, you know, in Reformation stuff, you look at the works of Luther and Calvin alone. It's two of your shelves on your mm-hmm. bookshelf. Uh, I don't know. I, I think you always have to start with the framework or the the kind of overall sweep. And in most educational systems you have that in the class. So let's say we're talking to a student that does a basic church history, they get that kind of sweep of things, and they know, you know, that Luther comes after Augustine. <laughs> they mm-hmm. know that that basic. I tend to go for the idea of find something, like you're going to find some period, some person in there that actually sparks your interest. Maybe Augustine, maybe Luther, maybe someone later, whatever. Maybe it's an issue. So let's say you're into issues of poverty, and you want to figure out what is the theological question of how do we approach poverty in our world or something, Mm -hmm. or something about the doctrine of God, whatever. I tend to drive students to the idea of find either a person that is kind of indicative of what you care about and kind of learn them, or even better, if there's just someone that draws your eye, so someone like Luther, someone like Wesley, whatever, Mm -hmm. then just dig into that one person, make them a a quasi-hero of yours for about, you know, a span of five or six months read a little bit of this, you know, go to YouTube, see if there's some videos on the kind of essence of their life, go to your professor, ask questions. And usually what you do is you start working up on patches of a quilt, basically. And if you try to learn everything at once, you won't. You just keep doing surveys, that won't help. But what you then start doing is, the next step I find is if you find, okay, that I really like that person. They really speak to me. Well, that actually is a transferable skill where you can say, okay, I've delved into Luther now, I wonder what uh, Jonathan Edwards has to say on something, Mm -hmm. or Augustine, or Bart, whoever. Mm -hmm. And then once you start to find these heroes, the next question becomes, okay, well, what are they interacting with? What's going on in their day? So I learned a lot about, say, the Reformation, because I got into Luther Calvin first. And then I was like, well, okay, who are their friends? Who are they mad at? Like, what what are they concerned about? And I kind of went out from there. And... To this day, in fact, it still feels like I just have patches on a quilt. I can put them all together maybe better, and I know more of them. Mm -hmm. But you're never going to totalize the subject. Right, and that's something people, it's always a shock to students that they just assume that people know all this stuff, but really a PhD is a small slice. You're not going to do all of Aquinas. You're going to do the one smallest bit, of slices, the smallest of slices, <laughs> even uh, to specialize is to truly specialize. And uh, yeah, I like, I like that image of a quilt. It really is. You're kind of <laughs> building a quilt or a landscape and, and you build it slowly and, and that you start to see patterns. And mm-hmm. so part of, and I like also the idea of a transferable skill. Cause w- once you start reading theology, you, you do start seeing common core concerns and, and, 
once you know kind of what the Reformation's about as much as anybody can, then you can sort of pick up those echoes in other Reformation thinkers. And, and mm. it does kind of expand out and at once, once you can place things. But it does take time. I think you're right. And, and just reading bits. And uh, I like that approach of start what you're interested in. It's a very Cambridge, Oxford thing, which is, you know, yeah. what do you want to write on? Right, <laughs> it's kind exactly. of like, just go find something and write on it. Where should I yeah, start? I, I don't know. Get that. a book and yeah. read it. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, I, that's part of one of the assignments for both History 1 and 2 at Seminary for me mm-hmm. is find somebody you're interested in and read them mm. and write your paper on them. And I actually have this thing where I say you can use no secondary sources. Wow. And mainly because we can gin up secondary sources now pretty fast. Yeah. And it's, it's very easy, but I just always say, look, it, you'll never be able to replace the freedom you finally feel when you can read Augustine on, say, his confessions, and actually write something just on that and not have to go and figure out what Peter Brown has to say about Mm -hmm. Augustine or something. But I also find they won't do it at first. Mm -hmm. But ideally, once they've done it, they go, okay, I can do this. This is fine. Mm -hmm. And I was the guy who was overboard on knowing all the historiography, you might say. I knew what trends there were in Reformation research. I knew all this. I knew all that. This is probably right before I started seminary. I got really into it. Then I realized I don't know squat about the actual guys in the Reformation. And I had this kind of catch up in primary source stuff. And I actually found it more enjoyable. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, this is why the historians are writing, but history isn't just what historians argue about. It's actually the the love of the subject itself. Yes, yes. And it is a love of primary texts. And I think that's where the emphasis lies uh, but you, but it really is both, and I th- we've talked about this before in a prior podcast, I think, of do you do primary texts or do you pick a textbook? And for mm. me, that's a really hard question because I want the depth of the primary text, but then you also want the breadth of the textbook. So I look yeah. back to my undergrad in, in religion and theology. We were reading lots of Bart, and mm. it really helped me to have sunk my teeth into Bart. But I really didn't have the survey in the sense of, I didn't understand that Augustine really was Western Christian theology for a thousand years. Yeah, yeah. Eight, you know, at least until Aquinas or something. He, he oh, sure, yeah. dominates. And that's sort of, that's a basic fact that you should know. But when you go deep and just read a lot of Bart and read some other things, you're missing that. So yeah. uh, trying to get both angles, getting both the breadth and the depth, and, and there's no easy way to do it besides digging in. It also reminds me of Jim Cramer, the stock guy. You ever watch him? Uh, Sometimes, yeah. Yells. The guy that yells. Yeah, yeah, I've learned a lot from him with <laughs> stocks and uh, investing. Uh, he's an entertainer, and and that's he's, that's why he's on TV. But he has said that to understand a stock, half of it is knowing what sector it's in. Mm. So you know, Apple is a technology stock, or uh, Wells Fargo is a banking stock. And yeah. if you know that, you know half of what's going to influence the stock. Half of it is the sector. And I've thought that really applies to theology as well. Half of it is knowing Aquinas is medieval. And so yeah. he's concerned about these things. And and Bart is 20th century and he's reformed. So half of understanding Bart is just understanding his time period, his influences. Not that he's just a product of that. He's more than that. But again, the historical is inescapable. Yeah. He's, he's not uh, reduced to that, but he's Certainly not beyond that. Yeah. Right. And it, so understanding just, yeah. that, yeah, you have to read him in his context. And that, and because you might think, well, you know, why doesn't he ask this question or that one? Well, it's partly because yeah. of his time period. Yeah. Well, for me with the historians, uh, to go back to the comic book analogy, mm-hmm. 
it, you know, we've all known the geeks who can sit around. Sometimes this is made fun of in like Big Bang Theory, but the geeks who can sit around and just argue about the potential minutia or I don't really like that stream. His run on Iron Man or something was the best. And, you know, of course, now these things are online and you look them up. And occasionally I'll go look them up and it has the, it does have this ring, this feel of like when people are merely writing about historiography in my world. Hmm. I mean, there's literally a famous book on English ref. I forget the exact name. I think it's like the debates on the English Reformation or something. And it's just, here's what such and such a historian said. Here's what such, this keeps going. At some point you're going, this is the geek world. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. the, these are the dudes playing D and D like just arguing about like, What's Spider-Man's better, Miles Morales or Peter Parker? Yes, yes. Versus, you know, the feeling of, okay, I just want to, for me, I usually, if I'm reading a comic or doing anything like entertainment-wise, it's at night right before bed just to kind of unwind a bit. And it's like, I just, I don't care. Like, I don't care, like, how mad you want to be at this. Like, I need to get the geeks out of my, my head and just kind <laughs> of enjoy it. But, and that's a weird analogy, but it works because, you know, when you get around scholars, particularly when scholars are interacting with other scholars, mm-hmm. the root of probably bo- of probably all of them is originally just a love of the primary sources. Mm-hmm. They just had an interest in it. They had an exposure to it. They started reading it. But at some point, they get into this, these arguments and these fights that don't quite convey. They're not meant to convey the love of the material itself. And so I always say as an historian, if I can set that aside in the classroom and try to just help the student love the material, then I think we're a little bit better place than if I just simply say, well, Heiko Obermann said this and uh, Roland Baton said this and this type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that just sucks (coughs) the air out of the room. And Bart's even worse. I mean, there's so many interpretations of him. Do you like him on this? What about book three? What about book two? What do we like? What do we don't like? And the fact is he's just a behemoth. Mm -hmm. You have to reckon with him. Yes, and everyone should be reading some Bart, and yeah, not not listening always to the interpreters, but listening to the text because you're not going to love the guy unless you actually read the text or hate right. him. You know, whatever you end up doing, but you've got to reckon with him, and and to do that, you're, it's going to, it's it's the same thing everyone else does. You sit there with the book and you read one word at a time, and yeah, you don't understand it, and then you read it again, and you don't understand <laughs> right. it, and then you ask Google some questions, it. and yeah, <laughs> and you throw it down, and then later, two years later, you think, oh, wait a minute, that's what he was talking about. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I mean, and anybody that's written that much, you're not going to like everything he says. Right. Uh, I don't that's care right. if it's Augustine. Uh, I mean, there is nobody, uh, again, you know, sometimes that way with podcasting or writing anything, blogging, at some point you're going... At some point, I'm going to say something overstated, understated, beyond what I meant, you know, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with Bart, it just, the problem is, is I've, I've met far too many people who are mad at him that have never cracked him. Yeah. Or they, or they love him, and they've never cracked it. Or same thing with Calvin, Luther, whatever. People are running around saying they're Lutheran, and I'm like, how much of him have you read? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is zero or next to zero, stop saying you love him. You, what you tend to love is the idea of something. Mm-hmm. Which is not the person. It, it, it depersonalizes it. Yeah, that's right. Methodists love to hate on Calvin. And I always <laughs> had that question, like, you need to read Calvin because Calvin's great. And he was a pastor. Yeah. And and it's real easy to caricature him with the whole predestination. But 
as we've said before, he really doesn't talk a lot about it. I mean, you read the Institutes, yeah. it's not a major emphasis. He's not the first. No. You know. Yeah, and he's not the first. It's in Paul and it's in St. Augustine. So to dislike Calvin is is really kind of sad in my book, even if, like we're saying, you don't have to agree with everything. But uh, but Calvin's great, but everyone kind of needs a whipping boy. And for Methodists, it's, oh, Calvin. Yeah, yeah. Or the same could be true for non-Wesleyans. You know, they hear about Wesley. Maybe they hear slogans. Maybe they hear the Wikipedia version of what he said. But you could I always say, if you read them, you may still not like them. But you will, you'll not like pieces rather than if you just think you don't like them, you'll just hate them. Mm-hmm. Which is really not a very Christianly way to act towards anybody. Yeah, that's right. You know, if I'm sitting across the table from a friend and they say something, I'm like, ah, I'm not sure about that. I'm not going to throw over the table and say... I hate you. I don't want to see you again. Like I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna treat someone that Anti-Christ. way. Anti Christ. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if it's profound differences, mm-hmm. you know, treat them with respect. It's easier though to not do that to somebody who's already dead. So. Yeah, and I think about that with my students because I was educated by professors that always played devil's advocate that wanted a sympathetic understanding. And so that's what I do as well. But I also remember how frustrating it was because you think, I just want someone to tell me the answer. I I don't (laughs) want to, every time I say you disagree or, you know, kind of they, I I get the sense they occasionally roll their eyes at me like, here we go. Cause they know I'm going to push back to try to get them to understand. And it ends up you, you, you are as a student or as a reader or as a thinker, eventually you do need a knot in your thread yeah. On, on, you know, and I think that's a Kierkegaard's old uh, comment. You know, the, you need a knot in it so you can use the needle and sew. Yeah. And if you're always interrogating, you're kind of always unhappy. But. Well, and you know, again, we do do this sometimes. So I was uh, speaking at a conference this weekend, and it's primarily college students. And one of the colleges that was present is mostly an engineering school. Hmm. So a lot of people who think in schematics think in either or is binary. And uh, after one of my talks, uh, I was getting on the elevator to go up to my room, and a bunch sort of piled in after me. And uh, one of them very uh, innocently, it wasn't a, a, a bad thing, he just said, uh, so Ryan, do, do you f- find yourself more on the Calvin side or on the Arminian side? Ooh. <laughs> I just looked at him. I just said, oh, no, I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I just smiled. I didn't mean it. I was just like screwing around with him. But he just, but it was funny because he just goes, how, what? I don't, like, he just, he just started stuttering and he said, yeah. what's the middle? I said, exactly. <laughs> and, and it was like, it was like a scene from a movie. I just got off the elevator and started walking through right. the room. little traveling music. Dropped the mic. Um, but the only thing I was doing there, I, I had an answer, but he wasn't looking for an answer. He was looking for a grid. Yeah. And he wanted to kind of peg me and... The answer is I could have sat down and eventually we did have conversations about not exactly that per se, but one of my talks was that when you approach your faith as a schematic, it depersonalizes it. It makes it less intimate. Mm-hmm. It's, it's check the box, all that kind of stuff. And it, it, as soon as I got on the, the elevator, he wanted to figure out where on this grid I was. Part of the reason why I didn't answer him too is I had no idea what his categories were. Yes. Like, does he see one as awesome and the other as horrible? Who wants to answer that question? Like, like, and if I had more time, I would have asked it. But that tends to be where the student goes sometimes off the rails is they want the um, the zeros and ones to all line up yeah, in the software. that's right. And then, they, and then they have it. And and part of teaching theology and, and history is is 
everything's a compromise and you've got to understand that. And so if we yeah. just give them a grid, they don't see the compromises, which is there's a certain compromise to Calvinism and there's a compromise to, uh, you know, Arminian, Arminianism and there's compromises galore. And it, if we call God father, that's a compromise in, in the yeah, sense. You yeah. You stress one thing, yeah. you're going to potentially de-stress something else, else that's right. that you need to be. Yeah. Totally. It's, it's just like designing the iPhone. Famously, they said, you know, it's always about compromises. Design is compromise. So yeah. if you want weight, if you want size, then your battery is by definition going to be limited. Yeah. Uh, if you want a big battery, it's it might last four days, but you can't put it in your pocket. So yeah, And human speech by definition is a compromise. Exactly. I had a professor who used to always say, stop trying to say everything whenever you're trying to say anything. He says, you can't make everyone happy. He says, find out what the point you want to push on. And he said, don't, don't overdo it. But if you're trying to stress, in my case, I was speaking to a group of folks and the leaders had told me, you know, a lot of them from broken homes, a lot of them from families where they have no idea of even what a father, a good father is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of a very basic message about being a child of God. Um, on the way up after the first talk, I remember saying to myself in my head, oh, I wish I had said some more of this or a little more of this. But then I stopped myself and I said, I can't say everything. I can't. I, I could have mm-hmm. been through it for three hours and probably not said everything. Mm-hmm. But I had one thing. I, had, I knew I had a target audience, kids uh, who are smart uh, in college who may or may not have a good home life who need to be told that, you know, being a child of God is not a scary thing. It's not to be equated with maybe with their youthful experience. Mm-hmm. And I just went after that, at least in that first talk. And, but that's what my professor was saying is, you know, if on an elevator, someone says, are you this or this? You can't respond in a yes, no, Mm -hmm. without knowing what they mean. Mm -hmm. And I I think we jump to the identification with jargon when sometimes the jargon slips. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it too with the student is they're honestly just curious about us as persons and they want to know what we think. And that's really sweet. And if they really asked me point blank one-on-one, 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 uh, I would answer the question. But in a sure. classroom setting, I, I don't, I get, and this is how I was educated, I don't really want to influence them in, mm. in an undue manner. Part of it is letting them decide for themselves and not just programming them. So I don't want to just come out and overtly say it. And I do want to get them to sympathetically critique things and enter mindsets and understand, you know, that this is a broadening of horizons experience. No, I think that's particularly true for undergrads who are more inclined than than my older students at a seminary environment, I think, to create heroes. Mm -hmm. So the average age on my campus is roughly in the 30s, low 30s, maybe. They're not trying to necessarily make a hero out of me. They're just glad to be in a class, to be thinking. Mm -hmm. But I remember, you know, as an undergrad, you know, a guy like Ralph Wood. Ding. (laughs) <laughs> do, 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 uh, do, do, do. That's right. <laughs> Mario Kart. It should be the Mario. Like you, you hit the, <laughs> the thing with your head, punch it and get the coin. Bow, 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 bow. Ralph Wood. Ding. He got embiggened. But uh, I mean, for him, for me, I just wanted to be that guy. Mm-hmm. Like I just thought it was cool. I just thought he kind of had, yeah. you know, I didn't want to wear his suits maybe because I was, I, I, I didn't want to be stuffy. He wasn't stuffy. But for me, uh, I'm not going to wear a suit. But other than that, I want to be him. Right. Because he loves literature, he loves all the stuff I love. So I had this hero worship thing. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right, you really have to push back and say, don't take the answer from me, otherwise I'm just become, you know, a mini pope of, of, over your life. Right. And you just want to say and believe everything I believe. 
that eventually you're going to be disappointed. That's right. And I know everything's a compromise. So to be honest, I know what I think, but uh, I know there are good reasons to disagree. And I don't want the responsibility of telling you what to think. And neither do I, you know, it's your life, man. You're going to figure it out. And and this this is how I've decided some of these issues. But, I, you know, in 100 years, I may be proven wrong. Uh, yeah. So, well, uh, and the worst is somebody that has a hero and then they find out that they're human. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I remember to this day, uh, I, I had a professor I really thought was awesome. Uh, and then I saw him in the, the college gym afterwards, <laughs> pumping iron. Uh, and he's like, like little, little tight shorts and things. And I was just like, oh, oh dear. <laughs> just, he didn't look good, like, huh? It wasn't the weight. It was nothing. It wasn't like he was weak. It was just like, I don't know, worlds colliding, that George Costanza idea. It's like, <laughs> you're supposed to be in the classroom 24-7. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. But what was I mean? I, I had this, you know, almost like a comic book. I had a hero. I had this guy mm-hmm. who was only supposed to live in one genre, do one thing. Or another time later in life, uh, I had a professor at seminary that I liked, and I saw him one time having an argument with his wife. Right. I thought, oh, oh, he, he's normal. He's human. And by that point, I had learned, like, don't make pedestals. Don't put these people on pedestals. They're there to sort of be a, a guide, not the road that's road itself. Mm-hmm. And in fact, being a professor uh, kind of can make people strange. Like they're not really people you want to be heroic, feel heroic no. towards, because uh, they spend no. too much time in the library, and mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, a, some of them are infamously uh, kind of out of touch, or when they retire, they don't know what to do. I mean, it, it's such yeah. a consuming vocation, and uh, in terms of your work to do it and then actually teach. And and I worry, too, it does something in the classroom. You get so used to hearing all these people listen to you. Right. I can tell how in 20 years you would get very self-absorbed. Yeah, yeah. You're at Thanksgiving. Well, yeah. in 1985, exactly. so-and-so was born. Yeah. I've been the sage on the stage for a long time. And and uh, so I feel for that because I, I can see how you... It's hard to not be that person after you've been that person for 20 years. What do you do? Yeah, it's true of preachers. Yes, absolutely. My my practical theology professor, he, he, he raised this issue in the context of when do you leave a church? Let's say you're moving on to a different job. He, I, I thought it was crazy at the time, but he said, churn in your notice, you're done. Like however much time you give him. He goes, make it short, not two weeks per se, but not a year. Mm-hmm. And he said, go, get up. Like He says, if you retire... Find another church and go to that one. Mm-hmm. Stop hanging around because he says the, the one, the temptation is for folks to always think that you're the, pr- like they blamed the, all the problems of the new pastor and they start coming to you. Golden age. Yeah, the back golden to, age Back stuff. to comic books, golden age comics. Yeah, golden yeah. age. And yeah, he just said, lay the mantle down and walk away. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it, it's probably harder. It's interesting because. That's my concern. I think that's harder to do than it's, it's easy to say, just do that. Yeah. But that's hard yeah, yeah. after 30 years or whatever. Well, I was going to say it's even harder when a lot of the same families and the, the church that we, we have the luxury as a professor, the classroom changes each year. Mm-hmm. You got a new set of students. They move Four through. years. Yeah. Yeah. It's they graduate. Turnover. Yeah. You get a lot more turnover. And in some, t- in some ways it's harder to keep intimacy because you just saw a crew, a crew that you were close with leave. You got a new crew. You got to start mm-hmm. the relationship over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can only imagine. Yeah. Like. You have two, two, three generations of a family that you've married, buried, and baptized. Yeah. Like, how do you walk away? And I think that's why my professor was hitting on it so hard. As he said, otherwise you just become Messiah. But then again, it's hard when they ask uh, 
can you do the funeral for our aunt or something? You know, are you really yeah. going to say no? That, that That's tough. Yeah. With that's, he actually said move cities. He says, and then say, sorry, I can't make it. Um, wow. But then yeah. selling your house and moving, I mean, that's... that's. Oh, yeah. Selling a house you got friends Stan- too. Yeah. Well, and selling a house in Stan- from Stanley County is, is it t- would take a, takes a while. <laughs> right. So right. <laughs> where I live right now. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of demand, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, comic books are, we both have a shared love of comics and growing up as I did in the 80s, I, I really, I guess that's the, the Silver Age is the 70s. Correct. The Silver Age is yeah. It, it it starts sometimes in the '60s. It, it one of the it, it all depends. I see Silver Age, Golden Age is the time everyone makes fun of. There's right. no really mature plot. Uh, it's you know bad guy of the week. Yeah, it's '40s and uh, '50s then. Yeah, and it, it's people usually mark. Yeah, so Silver Age is usually when it gets a little bit more mature and darker mm-hmm. themes. And one of the big ones is that's supposed to sort of kick this off is when Gwen Stacy dies in Spider-Man. Right, right. Because it's it's not just the bad guy wins, it's this elaborate trap where actually Spider-Man accidentally kills her himself. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that, but he... I thought it was with the goblins on the bridge and has them that's both right. hanging, yeah. Exactly, and he reaches down and he uses his web and he grabs her. That's right. It, it breaks her neck because he snaps the fall uh, too short too quickly. Right. Um, there's actually been a physics book written on this, by the way. Really? Uh, yeah, like a geeky physics guy That's said awesome. he was trying to teach people physics. And one of them is like, you can't stop a motion that fast without, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the jolts within the human. Hmm. Uh, this is why a car crash, you know, it's mm-hmm. the brakes might work, but you're stopping so fast. The, 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 the trauma on the body can be quite high, but that's how she dies. Anyway, you know, and then you look at Iron Man's alcoholism, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's very... It's taking on social ills for the first time. Huh. Yeah. And Hal Jordan's famous, I think, in the Silver Age. He's the second Green Lantern, and he's yeah. much loved, but it, it is a passing of the torch from the... I That's forget right. the first Green Lantern. Um, well, I forget, too, yeah. Yeah, but, and he comes becomes a different character, and he's in the, just, the JSA, first Green Lantern. Yes. But yeah. Hal Jordan is the classic uh, Silver Age, and the Flash gets taken over, too, by... Uh, so you're Barry Allen, right? Becomes yeah. the second. So that's the silver age. And they start dying. I mean, some of the, I mean, yeah. there's the whole, the whole thing with Robin dying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the joke now is he dies all the time in Batman. So <laughs> Sometimes because he deserves it because he's annoying. <laughs> Have you ever followed that? There's like a fake Batman Twitter. <laughs> and uh, it's usually like jokes about breaking bones and this kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, vigilante justice. <laughs> but one of the recurring themes is, oh, Misfired on the net. Got to get me a new Robin now. <laughs> Just kind of constantly killing Robin by accident. Yeah. It's like, oh, got to look where you're backing up. Need a new Robin. Yeah. <laughs> Ran him over. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, the 80s, I, I don't, it seems like at one time they tried to call that the bronze or the platinum age. They were trying to come up with something. It's not very good, though. Indicating, it no, it's, yeah. it never stuck. Something that's not the Silver Age. But the 80s were a grand time because that's when comics got really big and cool. We had a lot of stores. People mm. were into it. They were collecting. They thought they'd make money. Of course, none of it panned out. But uh, they were <laughs> they were printing all these variant covers. And uh, we had Alan Moore writing Watchmen. We had The Dark Knight Returns with Frank Miller. And uh, that was in the 80s. And those are two classic, classic works that... Yeah, really you, I forgot about Moore and Miller. Yeah, I mean, um, you think of the 80s as being kind of campy, but 
Some of the best stuff was No, no. A lot of the X-Men movies are still mining plot lines. Uh, the recent X-Men yeah. movie, Days of Future Past, was a 1980s storyline for only like yeah. one, one, one or two comics that became classic. Um, a lot of the X-Men movies have picked up so on the So is the uh, Infinity Gauntlet thing with Marvel. Yeah, Infinity Gauntlet. So the 80s yeah. were a prime time. I think the 90s are when things really kind of got a little... Uh, if, if Anything that was good, there's still good stuff getting written, but it feels like it's an imitation. And we really haven't had a, a genre-busting work since... Um, you know, Dark Knight, they were just Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, uh, it, it, they just were a litmus test yeah. in a sense yeah. of, of moving. Or not, man, that's not the right analogy, but it, it was... It was hard for me, though, that back to catalyst. this idea of church history. I went back and read the Frank Miller graphic novels. Uh -huh. You know, you can still buy them. And it's funny, the art is, it's good, but it's not like where digital art has gone to mm -hmm. now. Where, like, stuff that comes out now is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um you know, people live all different parts of the world and they can just digitize it, scan it, send it, clean it up. Like a lot of it's still hand-drawn in this day and just photocopied or yes. scanned. Yeah, I think that sounds a problem. They have to actually remaster the originals like they do with yeah. movies because the, the originals might have decayed or they were, they were working on copies of copies and wasn't preserved. So they actually go back in sometimes and try to clean it up and digitize yeah. it so that they can make a better print run. You'll see that with books too. It's like cheap cheap prints of books. Uh, the, yeah. The, the, it's, it looks like it's been photocopied. Yeah. And yeah. that's why it was $6 you know, or something, $5. Yeah. Yeah. Common domain stuff. Google Books does this a lot. Yeah. But even other stuff like, even like Penguin Classics or something, which are pretty inexpensive. Sometimes you're, you're, you're looking at it and you're thinking, this could be a lot crisper <laughs> right. <the> page. Right. <laughs> just, uh, I feel like you're screwing me right now. Yeah. yeah. They ran out of ink about 10 pages ago. Yeah. Had to. But, uh, yeah, the comic books, uh, it's those time periods and and understanding that Marvel and DC are very different and that mm -hmm. connects to church history and theology, getting a feel for... Uh, you know, Marvel is famous for being a bit more uh, sarcastic, maybe. Their heroes very are much, a little yeah. more broken. Yep. But DC, broken, yeah. But DC is a bit more mature. They're the ones yeah. doing Swamp Thing and Sandman mm -hmm. and Dark Knight and Batman's kind of mature, can be pretty violent. Yeah. Uh, Marvel does have a little of the goofy side, Peter Parker and his quips. and Well, uh, they had a famous series uh, with Deadpool. Uh, it's about four or five uh, books. It's called Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> and it's actually really funny because it, it's sort of like how would he have killed all the main superheroes? Mm. And it's the idea that he finally goes unhinged. And I won't give away the ending, but um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's tongue in cheek. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's just a standalone like, let's make one of our famous like like fighters kill Thor, <laughs> or just right. like he kills the, the 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 Fantastic Four, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and it's, you're not gonna really see DC do much of that. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, DC's not quite that tongue in cheek kind of fun, uh, but the DC. It's tough because I love them both. Marvel, I have a real soft spot for the X-Men and Kitty Pride because I read that stuff at teenage years. And so I love the, the, those characters and I love the Justice, or I love the uh, Avengers and all that. But then DC, that Batman and Superman are iconic. You can't beat them. You can't. No. And and there's such um, metaphors that, that Superman is kind of the hero we wish we could be. And then yeah. Batman is the self-made hero who doesn't have powers, but has all these contingency plans and, and yeah. trains ruthlessly and, and the dislike that Batman would have for Superman because Superman, in a sense, 
All he's got to do is walk out in the sun and he can fix any problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, Batman had to grovel, <coughs> grovel a bit and work hard to, to escape. It had to become past. a ninja. Yeah. Become a ninja, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, very different houses in terms of Marvel versus DC. And, of course, there's some other publishers, but but never had the influence that those two had. And uh, theology is very similar, knowing, getting a feel for the, the Reformed world or the Reformed universe versus the the uh, Methodists or the, the Catholics or the Greek Orthodox. I mean, they're... Yeah, yeah. Well, is that a good place to stop? It's um, always a good place to stop for this podcast, maybe. All right. <laughs> we'll pick it up next time. All right. Bye. Bye.